welcome to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Rin, Tech Wiz, Santiago Brand, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast, and are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we're going to go over some questions that uh, have been emailed to us, questions that uh, popped up on YouTube. We're doing our best to catch up, so you know, hopefully we can uh, help out our loyal listeners and viewers out there. But before we start, we'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters, and especially our show sponsor. It's the 6th Annual Super Brain Summit, April 8th, at Bradley University, featuring Dr. Bruce Wexler. He's a psychiatrist at Yale Medical School. He'll discuss neurotherapeutics. How can we regulate the brain with computers? Register at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. We're going to have Dr. Wexler on the show and in one of the next couple shows, guys, so stay tuned. Excellent. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. A couple questions, guys. I'm just going to read them off. If we can address it, we address it. If we can't, we can't. Obviously, the Ukraine, you know, the war, PTSD questions. We have some people we know in Russia that have probably gotten shut down. We may want to, you know, you know, talk about that a little bit. And then we had uh, a question about leaky gut. I know we're not, uh, Skip's not here. He's the, uh, the leaky gut guy. But I'll just read the question and then we can address whatever we can address. Can you do a video on leaky gut and leaky blood-brain barrier? Do you think these things would show up on an EEG? I've also heard if you take GABA as a supplement, it will only have effect if you have a leaky blood-brain barrier. Say that three times fast. I'm interested to hear what you have to uh, say about that. Is that anything we want to touch or we want to hit that when Skip comes back? If you eat GABA, you basically digest it. Um, uh, you'll break it down into its component parts, which may be useful for you to produce GABA later, but you don't end up with GABA because you eat GABA. You digest it. Um, uh, and as, as to leaky gut, I'm not an expert on gut. I'm an expert on brain, and blood-brain barrier is the brain's electrical patterns. Um, I know that brain trauma and uh, also toxicity can end up with a leaky blood-brain barrier. Uh, there's lots of ways to end up with that kind of a problem. But, um, I, again, I, I think if we get somebody on the show that's a, more of a specialist in blood-brain barrier and gut health, uh, that that would be the, the time to get a, a more complete answer on this. Uh, ask me an EG question, and I'll be happy to answer it, but... I'm out of my league when I'm trying to talk about uh, blood-brain barrier and, and GI. Well, Jay, you know, if we're going to talk about EEGs, do, do, isn't there a doctor we know over in uh, Russia that uh, is, is yeah. shut down now? Well, What's going on over there? We, we actually uh, had Yuri Kropotov on uh, briefly with the Australian group. And Yuri, uh, although he's a multiple professor, he's a professor in Trondheim, Norway, as well as his professorship in, in St. Petersburg, Russia. But his lab is the Institute for the Human Brain, which is about maybe 200 yards from the Pavlov Shrine. And in neuroscience in Russia, how you have to indicate how you're related to Pavlov somehow before you actually write anything else in your paper. So, uh, and... Yuri's lab is um, a premier lab. Um, 
uh, Moscow has got its own neuroscience center and uh, St. Petersburg is as well. When it was the Soviet Union as an intact union, uh, uh, Yuri and his lab were the head of neuroscience for the Soviet Union. So it's a major laboratory. Uh, Vera Grenyanchenko is an MD-PhD epileptologist, child neurologist, and uh, she's been doing the EEG interpretations for us after I retired. Uh, we, we looked around for somebody that could do competent work, and we're kind of underwhelmed by a lot of the people we interviewed um, uh, ha- by having them write reports. And, um, and uh, her reports look like I wrote them. I mean, I'm, we're very, very pleased with her work. The difficulty is, right now, the banking system in Russia, you know, good luck with that. Try to pay somebody in Russia. You know, so we are the physician that's working for us writing reports at Brain Science International ends up uh, uh, being kind of stuck behind um, uh, the the Russian uh, system being shut down right now. Uh, About a week before the shutdown happened, uh, when it came around to paying her for that month, we sent three months worth of pay, not the one month that we owed at the moment. And uh, so uh, we paid her in U.S. dollars, and, and she got it before the shutdown. So it shouldn't interrupt our service, but pretty much anything in Russia right now is is, is difficult. Uh, their train system is shut down. Uh, if you get on a train, it's because you have a handwritten ticket, and you can't, I mean, you can't handwrite tickets at the rate that Apple Pay and all of those things were doing it. So uh, there, there are systems over there right. in in, in 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 big trouble. Now, can you communicate with email to them, or have you, we don't yeah. know yet? Email is not a okay. difficulty. Uh, if you change the language that you're in from Russian to English, um, uh, services are a lot more open uh, on on the internet from Russia. But if you if you're uh, communicating in, in Russian. Uh, a lot of the uh, services that you could access online are disallowed at the moment. And, are you going to have to uh, get good with Bitcoin? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, <laughs> luckily, it seems to be working out for now for us. Now, I have to say, uh, being able to get around something that's happening in the middle of a war uh, about paying somebody is the least of the problems that are happening in a war. It's, it's an ugly circumstance. Look at all the families that are disturbed and being destroyed, the kids that have been killed. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just a, a gigantic tragedy. Well, Jay, a couple of emails came in on PTSD. What Do, do we want to address that? Like, what, what is P, PTSD? What is going on? Uh, what, what can we anticipate over there? You know, you have Ukraine, and then you have the, the Russian soldiers going in. Who may or may not want to be there. You have all these, you know, conflicts going on. What, what's what's going on in the EEG, Jay? And then, uh, Doctor Laura, what's what's going on from a uh, psychological standpoint? Not everybody that is exposed to trauma ends up with PTSD. Um, if you have an increased arousal level, you're more likely to end up with a PTSD than if you have a low arousal level. Uh, unfortunately, people that are sharp and bright have a propensity towards having experiences that end up with a post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Now, the military prefers calling it post-traumatic stress and dropping the D, because if you call it a disorder, soldiers are not really willing to stand in line saying, I have a disorder. Uh, they want to say, I am all I can be, so you know, I, I, I don't have anything wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a problem. Uh, you need to be able to reach out for help in order to get help. And um, step one is allowing them to reach out. So let's drop the D if we can, if we're talking to military people. Um, You have to be exposed to trauma and still feel traumatized for six months before it's a formal diagnosis. It doesn't mean you haven't had PTSD before the formal diagnosis. It just means that they couldn't diagnose it. Um, it, it, the first three months were still post-traumatic stress. Uh, it's just not a formal diagnosis until you've held it for a long period of time. In Israel, they studied a, a, a little kibitz that had a, a terrorist event, and everybody was traumatized. Well, uh, they, they studied them carefully. At the end of one year, 60% of the people in the little kibitz were over it. They They were getting on with their life. They didn't feel post-traumatic stress disorder at the end of one year. Now, the researchers thought, well, it's an incline. It's just on its way down. If we wait another six months or a year, the percentage will continue to drop. Didn't happen. The 40% who had PTSD long-term at one year didn't really get over it with more time. But, but, you know, if you think about it, if if you have a phobia uh, about spiders, waiting a year, you don't have less of a phobia about spiders you know once you've got it locked in it's it's there you've been traumatized now phobias aren't the same as ptsd but a very simple model that's got some analogies to to learn from ptsd happens when you have a high arousal level and then you're exposed to something that gives you a higher arousal level in a panicky over arousal and you classically condition what it is that triggered you so altitude spiders you know whatever you know you could be afraid of almost anything with 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 a a phobia but in order to get rid of a phobia you have to drop the arousal level as step one you can't expose them to a hierarchy of things that are more like spiders a little at a time fuzzy dice and you know you you can't expose them to anything until you've dropped the arousal level or you simply re-traumatize so in PTSD, there's a lot of exposure therapy that happens before you've actually effectively dropped the person's arousal level to the point where they can experience something without being re-traumatized by it. So in PTSD, the re-exposure approach is ill-advised until later in therapy. You can't do it uh, initially because it's a mistake until you drop the arousal level. In EEG, PTSD has some very common findings. Uh, and depending upon the age at which you're traumatized, it encodes at the frequencies that are available at the age. So if you're traumatized as a very young kid, uh, the lower frequencies that are available to you at that age you know, age two, three years old, um, you've got delta and theta content. You don't really have alpha in the alpha band yet, uh, so you don't expect to see their trauma in the alpha band. Uh, you see a slower focus. And the location is the right temporoparietal junction 
where you perceive faces and body language and the emotional content of speech, all the uh, social milieu that you're in. And uh, if you can't, and, and if, if it's got a slow focus or an alpha excess in that area, you don't perceive affect properly. And if people have had PTSD, they, they have difficulties with an accurate perception. They'll misperceive and be triggered very easily, but a proper perception of emotion requires that area to be functional and uh, it requires an intervention. Neurofeedback can suppress the slow content or alpha content in the right temporal parietal junction, the T6 or P8 electrode, and uh, that location can end up coming back online. And uh, we've seen this repeatedly, uh, EEG neurofeedback combined with trauma therapy ends up opening up the therapy. If you're all the therapy you want to do until you actually get the right temporal parietal junction starting to work is going to be obstructed by the person's inability to perceive affect properly. And once you get that perception cleared, then the therapy moves forward much more readily. Bessel van der Kolk has popularized neurofeedback for trauma. Uh, he's a, a big name in the trauma circles uh, for a reason. I mean, it, uh, he's uh, Trauma Research Foundation is his foundation. Uh, uh, and uh, he, he's extremely favorable uh, towards biomedical interventions because he's a psychiatrist, MD, uh, not just talk therapy. Uh, he actually sees the biomedical underpinnings and uh, uh, has popularized the use of clonidine uh, to deal with beta excesses, which are over-arousal biomarkers. Um, and again, you have to drop arousal before you do exposure. So uh, uh, his uh, biomedical approach ends up being very, very positive. We had Seabrin Fisher on. Um, uh, she's worked along with the Trauma Research Foundation and, uh, and that area specifically and has uh, been the proponent of the, uh, the early proponent of trauma interventions with neurofeedback, uh, FPO2, um, uh, right temporal work, uh, th those things emerge from her work, um, n not from uh, some uh, big research lab somewhere, but from an individual clinician working with trauma survivors. So uh, I would suggest uh, the PTSD that's likely happening uh, in uh, in uh, Ukraine is going to end up being families with kids that have trauma. Uh, uh, obviously, parents uh, are uh, uh, people don't have as much concern for parents as kids, but parents get traumatized as well and need to have the same kind of intervention. If you're traumatized, you're not going to be a great therapist for your kid. So, um, and soldiers as well. Uh, it, uh, it's an unfortunate circumstance that people are exposed to traumatic circumstances like war, uh, but um, yeah, the, uh, apparently a lot of uh, unwitting uh, Russian soldiers were rounded up and sent to Ukraine. They apparently have a 40-mile-long convoy that they can't keep moving. The, the engines keep not working mm -hmm. in the trucks. You know, one packet of sugar into a gas tank ruins the engine really well. You know, <laughs> and if you if you slice a hose, it doesn't work very well. So there's a lot of you know, soldiers doing sabotage on vehicles, right. and um, but then they're not feeding them either. So uh, uh, war as hell, uh, uh, whether you're on one side or the other, um, 
the, the people uh, trying to inflict uh, the circumstance are being traumatized as well. Well, over a third of our listeners are international. Um, any advice we can give or any thoughts, Dr. Laura, on PTSD? Would, number one, stay alive. I can, uh, yeah, please stay alive. I'll, I'll dovetail into what Jay was saying, uh, a couple things. One, um, you know, if you go to DSM, we can, you know, define PTSD in a behavioral uh, system. It's very, I mean, my opinion, I think all of our opinions, DSM is pretty limited. It, you know, the PTSD diagnosis was designed to uh, deal with military vets. And, um, you know, certainly we have other people, and we're going through a war now, uh, and, you know, so we're talking about military vets, but we're also talking about families and children, as, as Jay mentioned. So um, I think the point is that if you're exposed to a threat, and I think the point that can be made, you know, you're exposed to a threat. You know, you see a, a, a bomb go off in front of you. You see uh, your your bunkmate get blown to smithereens. I mean, that is definitely something very frightful. Uh, I've worked with some uh, vets in the past. And what I learned from the experience of working with these folks is that it's not just that they're exposed to a threat, but they're, they, they either perceive a threat is coming um, or it can be a fictive threat. It could be something that, that they are, are you know, um, worried is going to happen. I, I had one gentleman uh, years ago who, um, you know, he was sitting in his bunk, and he never saw anything traumatic, but he heard the whistle of these shells going over his building, and just the, the sound like, oh, you know, these bombs could hit me, they could hit my neighbor, they could hit, you know, the kids in the town next door, Just just the expectation um, uh, that, that you can get hit is enough to cause a trauma. So you're exposed to a threat, uh, a possible threat. It could happen. Um, and then you have a physical reaction, like your body kind of separates, your, your, your mind kind of separates from, from the reality. And your uh, uh, biology or physiology kind of takes over the fight or flight system. And that is, you know, certainly right hemisphere stuff. Uh, trying to protect yourself from the environment. The other thing that um, Bessel uh, Vanderkolk brought up was that he, he kind of talked about the signature of certainly the, the right hemisphere over the, the temporal parietal junction, over the the, uh, the right uh, fight or flight, the amygdala regions. Um, but he also brought up this point that you can have a disruption in the front left in the F3 regions. Uh, he brings up the point of fight flight and freeze and so when you're frozen you know you, you get spooked and you know i'm being uh minimizing a little bit but yeah you get the crap scared out of you you can't speak and so your front left area your broca type area retrieval and expression those areas kind of uh shut off and you, you can see that in a signature of a eeg pattern and that's definitely something a uh, uh, vessel brought up um and Seaburn Fisher also, you know, talked about uh, developmental traumas in terms of your um, more posterior brain regions. You know, she talked about the brain development from the bottom up. And so we're talking about brainstem uh, regions. We're talking about cerebellar regions. But she, but she brought up great points about uh, the vestibular system, the vestibular cochlear system, your your balance, your GPS, and being able to um, uh, have a soothing mechanism. So Jay was making the point that, yeah, if you're already over-aroused or you're already 
you know, easily triggered, so to speak, and then you get put into a situation, you're fragile already, and then you get the crap scared out of you, and now you're, you know, extra on guard for sure. But um, uh, Seaburn Fisher brought up the point that, you know, as you're a developing child, you, you need to have your vestibular system uh, integrated, you know, so that, it, you know, the mother's rocking, you know, just being very basic and developmental, mother's rocking of a child can develop the soothing pattern, soothing, you know, that you're calm and you believe you're safe. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You, you need this kind of base of safety before you can go on and, you know, experience, um, you know, sketchy things in life, so to speak. Um, and so, yeah, that's a real problem. So if you have people who have developmental issues, you know, uh, not, not good family systems, et cetera, other traumas, other threats, you know, substance abuse, et cetera, uh, autocratic leaders, I, you know, I don't know if you want to get into that, but, but the point is, yeah, you, then, you, then you put someone in, into a war situation or another threatening situation. You know, car accidents can produce a uh, acute trauma response. It may not develop into PTSD You need six months of symptoms to kind of qualify for the diagnosis. So yeah, let's take a break in the action to tell you about the Super Brain Summit at Bradley University. You can check it out online at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. It's happening this April 8th. Featured speaker will be Dr. Bruce Wexler, an international expert on digital neurotherapeutics, and he's a psychiatrist at Yale School of Medicine. Hey, visit the Brain Cave, walk through the brain using Oculus Quest. How cool. Check it out April 8th, bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. So, again, to the DSM for PTSD or PT uh, post-traumatic stress, I like that we want to drop the disorder because it's a, it's a normal reaction. It's a normal reaction to being uh, threatened. And so, you know, if your your body is going to run because there's a bear chasing you, that's normal. You know, if your your body is going to be on high alert because there's someone, you know, on the corner with a gun, well, good. Yeah, you should be on high alert. So it's an, a normal uh, response to a threatening situation. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to have a heightened startle response. You're going to have flashbacks where you experience or relive the, the trauma. And, you know, the basic point in terms of evolution and, and defense is, is yeah, if you're, um, you know, running away from a dangerous thing, A, that that's a normal thing, but you're also going to be overly protective. And, you know, to a degree, that's good. You're not going to be jumping out of airplanes and running in the street and, running toward a threat, so to speak, if you have a heightened startle response. So um, so it's that, the flashbacks, you can have nightmares, you avoid things related to the trauma. So there, there's this kind of list of symptoms. And, you know, things are kind of dysregulated on, on the emotional front in terms of the limbic system. You know, your memories are attached to your emotions and being able to identify threats, as, as uh, Jay was saying with the, the uh, right hemisphere, uh, temporal parietal junctions. Yeah, who, who's friend, who's foe, all of those kind of things. You're talking about verbal expression, et cetera. And so, you know, the point, what do you do about it? So if the, the dysregulation is right hemisphere, you know, certainly want to work there. But, but there can be um, a disruption in the default mode network where you're kind of flooded with uh, negative imagery and, um, you know, my understanding of, you know, you can do stuff like alpha theta training, which kind of disconnects the emotional experience from the movie. Like you can watch, so to speak, the movie or, or relive the event, but, but kind of being detached from the emotional experience. And that's what a lot of the uh, trainings 
you know, the goals are is to allow someone to process, so to speak, or have the, the visual experience or the memory experience, but not have the extreme uh, air quotes overreaction um, when, when someone is in a safe uh, environment. So, um, you know, from neurofeedback standpoint, there, there's certainly lots of trainings. Um, and then, you know, the point is to learn to get grounded. So there's some psychological interventions in terms of, um, you know, mindfulness training, helping people get grounded. But I think everybody these days, you know, Bessel van der Kolk uh, would say that, you know, psychotherapy can help only to a degree. The rest of the work needs to be physiological. This is a physiological condition, and you have to get after it with a physiological technique, such as neurofeedback. He brings up yoga as an intervention. Uh, EMDR um, are things that can be effective working with post-traumatic stress. So, you know, some of this stuff you can talk all day long, so to speak, in psychotherapy, but that doesn't necessarily get after uh, the physiological um, overstimulated brains that uh, people experience with the post-traumatic stress. The left frontal location at F3 that they've identified is the same spot that taps into the vagal nerve, uh, which is obviously the fight, flight, freeze aspect of it. The vagal uh, vagal nerve is um, uh, activates parasympathetic uh, activity. Uh, the F3 location is where the TMS people point the magnet. And if it's actually the correct location, when they pulse the magnet, it slows the heart. Uh, the, the, the normal biobehavioral marker for TMS is the spot that makes your fingers wiggle. Uh, but Martijn Arns in, in the Netherlands found the spot also makes the heart slow. So the second uh, measurement of whether you got the spot correct or not is... You know, measure forward from the spot that makes the fingers wiggle, uh, but if you've got the right spot, it'll make the heart decelerate. So the, uh, the, there's a biological basis to tie the F3 location into the fight-flight-freeze response. Now, one part about PTS that people don't quite commonly talk about is the moral injury. Um, I, I, I had a, a client who was uh, a tank driver and a medic and he expected when he went over there to see blood and gore that didn't bother him one bit not one iota but as a tank driver at night they're flying down the road as fast as they can they don't want to be shot at from the sides they're just trying to get there kids will run out onto the road looking to get candy and he ran over some kids and he could not get over that he would wake up in the middle of the night seeing his own kids in front of his tank that he was running over. And the moral injury of him having killed a child was what bothered him. None of the missing legs, missing arms, bloody stumps, you know, intestines hanging out, none of that bothered him one little bit. There was no trauma from that experience. But the the car accident of driving a tank over a bunch of kids was enough to absolutely ruin his sleep. He hadn't slept well in years. So um, I, I would suggest that the moral violation, if you do something that violates your morals, or if you see things that violate your morals, those are things that injure you in a way that simply the sight of something doesn't do it. 
Now, there are plenty of people that blood and guts is enough. <laughs> you know, it violates their sense of right and wrong to see something that's inside be outside, you know, and uh, that, that upsets them rather badly. That's enough. You don't necessarily have to have some biblical, you know, uh, uh, code that you violated directly. You know, the, the regular trauma is sufficient for most people. But uh, the, the, the thing that's not talked about quite often is the moral injury aspect of PTS. And for soldiers, sometimes you have to do things in war that hopefully you wouldn't consider doing elsewhere. So it's, uh, it, it, there's kind of a built-in violation. Well, you said drop the D. What about dropping the P post? I mean, they're, they have stress right now. And uh, people in you know yeah. Eastern Europe that are listening to us, you know, right now, is there any advice we can offer them uh, what sure. to do uh, to to get through yeah. this? To be all you can be as a soldier or a citizen, you need to learn how to wind it down. In the midst of chaos, you have to be able to find your center. And one of the techniques that's very useful is the heart rate variability pattern breathing uh, you can actually turn yourself from sympathetically over dominant to being more balanced with hrv training so uh, a slow deep breathing uh four seconds in six seconds out five and five i mean different people have different ratios of how much inhale and exhale to use but if you don't have a therapist directly working with you just go for deep slow breathing about five seconds in, five seconds out, six breaths in a minute for a, 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 for anybody that's past puberty is a reasonable rate. Um, and uh, if you're old and you have cardiac problems, you may have to be a little bit faster than that. But slow it down and make the breathing deep belly breathing, not fast shallow breathing. That actually grabs your physiology and changes your balance of sympathetic parasympathetic balance towards a balance with some parasympathetic and sympathetic content so you're not just you know overly jacked up being jacked up excessively is one of the things that can lead you to experiencing something as trauma so getting past it ends up being very useful let's say they're they're listening to us right now what what are the exercises we can have them do jay Heart rate variability training ends up being very useful for balancing the sympathetic overarousal with some parasympathetic balance. And a deep, slow belly breathing is what you're looking for. Uh, ideally, a therapist will hook you up to a device and they'll come up with a personalized frequency for exact breathing. But as a general rule, it's about six breaths in a minute, which is one breath every 10 seconds. Five seconds in, five seconds out, we'll do it. Uh, doing four in and six out will be a little bit more parasympathetic tending, uh, but uh, slow deep breathing is the is the 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 simple fix. I actually had a friend who was going to go over to work with Syrian refugees in France, and uh, she asked me what EEG device should I bring with me, and I said, well, quite honestly, I I think you should focus on HRV because you could fix one person with neurofeedback in maybe six weeks, two months, and that's one person. You might get five or six, or maybe if you're really busy, 10 in a day on a device. But 
if you do HRV and you train somebody on pattern breathing, they can teach somebody else on pattern breathing and you have influences on thousands of people in the same period of time that you would have influenced a few dozen. So, um, and, and she took took the advice. Now, uh, the Syrian refugees didn't really do any work with her immediately because they didn't trust anybody immediately. And eventually one of the elders kind of uh, decided he would do some work with her. Uh, he found relief, advised others to go, and pretty soon she was swamped with people. I mean, as soon as she was accepted as somebody who was, uh, you know, really trying to help them as opposed to trying to, you know, do something to them that they didn't want to have done, um, uh, she, her, her work was accepted. And she helped a lot of people with the HRV approach. And again, it would have been very limited if she would have been doing neurofeedback. So uh, we're, we're dealing with a giant war zone. There's not enough therapists to... Uh, parachute in and help with everybody so something that can help on mass that may not be the perfect fix but it's a piece of the fix and uh, slow pattern deep belly breathing is a piece of the fix uh, it will help you wind down your over arousal uh, keep you from having uh, uh, panic attacks uh, ramp up from being over aroused so uh, what can they do well uh, obviously deeper relaxation with muscle, e.g. training, and all that is fine and dandy, but the number of people that would be able to have access to that is pretty limited. So uh, deep, slow belly breathing is, I think, the thing that we can hand off without technology having to be uh, associated with it. Easy for us to say, right? Yeah. I, I've seen, that, that, you know, voluntary slow breathing help people that uh, uh, tend towards panic, avoid uh, common panic attacks that they were having. It seems to be very useful. And uh, I, I think that's that's the one thing we can suggest that doesn't end up requiring us to parachute in with hardware. And uh, uh, just the, the idea of breathing slower, deeper, abdominal, not thoracic, uh, it, you end up having positive impact. Tapping into a therapist is important. You know, uh, the, uh, the the Israeli kibbutz that 60% of the people got over it in a year is going to happen. Some of the people in the war zone will end up uh, not really having the same uh, problem a year from now uh, with it. They'll kind of get back to their life if it were to suddenly stop. Uh, but there are, are a lot of people that have had their uh, their normal expectation of their life shattered, um, uh, their expectation of the future shattered. Uh, you have to start questioning, you know, why am I here? What am I really doing? I mean, there's going to be a lot of existential crisis that's triggered by all of this in a, in a way that's uh, difficult to recover from. Uh, it, it's important for people to reach out to therapy people to end up having help. Uh, this is not something you tackle alone. Uh, get rid of the whole D at the end. Uh, this is, you've had trauma and it's a normal thing to have stress after trauma. You have, you suffer strain from the stress. It's normal to have some problems from that sleep difficulties, uh, uh, all sorts of, neurocognitive changes, uh, please reach out for some help. There are a lot of therapists that specialize in this area, 
but even a therapist that's not a specialist in the area will be able to do some assistance and potentially hook you up with people that are more specialized. So uh, I, I think the the important thing is for people to feel free to reach out without the stigma of something being wrong. This is a normal response to these stressors. The other piece is, you know, when, we, when we're talking about post-traumatic stress versus an acute stress syndrome or, uh, you know, when you diagnose, um, an acute stress uh, syndrome means you've, you know, exposed to a threat, but your symptoms don't persist. They kind of wind down after a month or so. Whereas with post-traumatic stress, uh, the criteria is, you know, these symptoms last for six months and longer. The thing that could differentiate, prevent an acute stress uh, syndrome from turning into post-traumatic stress is the piece that Jay is talking about, that if you can talk about what's going on, you have a great chance of the uh, the acute stress not uh, converting into uh, post-traumatic stress. So... Even, yeah, kind of finding a therapist, talking it out. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking I, I was in a car accident, and that's minimal, a small car accident, by the way, but a small car accident, you know, minimal compared to what people are suffering uh, in um, Ukraine. Um, and by talking about it, my, my, I, I was spooked. I was afraid to get back into a car. And um, the symptoms lasted a couple weeks, but I absolutely talked about it, actually, you know, went, went through everything. And that was useful uh, for me personally, but but that is a, a good point that you don't. It, it's not a foregone conclusion that you you get uh, traumatized and that has to last you know six months and longer. You can actually intervene early and prevent some uh, worse things from happening. The arousal level ends up being a major influence on how easily you recover. Uh, it, remember the phobia model. Drop your arousal level is step one. Let's say you had trauma and you've learned how to drop your arousal level. You may not have a therapist set up a hierarchy of things that slowly decouple you from your trauma, but life experienced with a lower arousal level will slowly decouple you from your trauma. Uh, you, you need to drop your arousal level first. And uh, it, it's important for you to work with somebody who has body-oriented therapy that can actually look at your depth of relaxation because all of the thinking doesn't really equate to having your body deeply relaxed and until you actually uh, work on the body itself the body as as Bessel's book says the body keeps a score the other piece of it I'm thinking that there's a little um, paperback textbook the relaxation response I think it was uh, written in the 70s but they, they talk about the three hours of relaxation one of them has to do with um, making sure you shut the adrenaline down. So adrenaline um, starts the fight-or-flight system, and it's a chemical response that can last or typically lasts four minutes. Anything that lasts beyond four minutes once you've achieved safety um, can be you talking yourself into, you know, uh, more anxiety. So there's a part of this where you, you do want to do some self-talk restructuring to help yourself get reminded that, you know, you look around where you are, you're physically safe, you're grounded, you can feel the table and the chair and and um, doing those kind of exercises because your adrenaline can keep uh, pumping, you know, for could be, you know, days on end almost um, because you're uh, re-traumatizing yourself, so to speak, by reliving and by 
you know, catastrophizing and all those things we, we talk about in cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's the other piece of it. You you, you got to get to a place where you can um, get a hold of your thinking and um, prevent the adrenaline from, from still kicking around. Yeah, the, the image of the trauma to inflict the trauma back mm-hmm. on you and and realizing that you're in a safe place, getting the image of yourself in a safe place as opposed to seeing yourself in the traumatic experience again uh, helps you get past it. Well, Yuri, uh, hang in there. I don't even know if Yuri is in Russia right now. He could be in Saint, in in uh, Trondheim, Norway, um, at the Technical University, where he's a professor as well. I, I don't know where he's located specifically at the moment. Um, I, I I do hope he's doing well. Um, you you, if you're the head of a major institution in Russia, and you speak out the entire institution may be penalized. I don't expect to hear Yuri saying one thing or the other because he's got an entire staff dependent on him not messing up their circumstance as well. Um, there are a lot of people right. protesting. I, I, I hope they have an effective uh, uh, intervention on their government, uh, but I, I don't expect to hear anything you know, loud from uh, uh, from a specific mouth from the head of an agency because again that that would have negative influence on all the people down down slope from him well we just hope that the people are trying to do good out there over there that you know can get can stay connected and and help help people we thank you all for listening to neuro noodles neurofeedback and neuropsychology podcast we'd like to thank our patreon business supporters we'd also like to thank our show sponsor the 6th Annual Super Brain Summit this April 8th at Bradley University featuring Dr. Bruce Wexler. He's a psychiatrist at Yale Medical School. He'll discuss neurotherapeutics and how we can regulate the brain with computers. Register now at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. Hey, do you have an idea for a topic or guest? Please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And again, hey, if you really, really like us, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, all of them, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. Where else do they get this kind of coverage? Well, we're we're trying to clean things up, trying to put more, get different opportunities for our sponsors out there. All right, guys, stay safe. All of our uh, Eastern European peeps, you know, please stay alive, you know. Do your breathing exercises, and then listen to us uh, next week. Cue the music.